This morning we'll be in the book of Exodus, the 20th chapter. Mm -hmm. And we'll be looking at the first two verses of Exodus chapter 20. If you need a Bible, just uh, raise your hand and we can make sure that you get one. So Exodus is the second book of the Bible. And again, we'll be in the 20th chapter, verses 1 and 2. So I'll give you a little more time to find it. The title of my sermon this morning is The Authority to Command. The Authority to Command. I ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word. We won't be standing long. It's only two verses that, we, that we're going to read. And it reads this way. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let me read that one more time. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let us look to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help in understanding these verses this morning. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can open up your word. We know that when your word is open, that you speak to us. So we pray, God, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would speak through me, that you would give me grace to communicate your word clearly. Lord, that people might be brought to worship you. I pray, God, that through your word, you would call us to faith and repentance today. I pray that we would see the beauty of Christ through your word today. I ask you these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning, I want us to ponder this question. Do you have a problem with submitting to authority? The question that we have to ponder this morning, do you have a problem with submitting to authority? Now, in order for us to answer that question, let's first define authority. Authority is defined in this way, as the legal and formal right to give orders and commands and take decisions. Authority is not to be confused with power. Power is defined as the ability or potential of an individual to influence others and control their actions. So authority has a hierarchy to it, whereas power follows no hierarchy. With authority, the higher the position or, or office, the more authority possessed. Authority is an integral part of our society. It ensures that rules are adhered to. Can you imagine living in a world where there were no laws or rules to govern a society, it would be total disruption. It would be chaos. You see, authority prevents the breakdown of social order. We see many examples in our society today of authority figures. Teachers, uh, police officers, pastors, government officials, parents. The authority figures that we see in our society and even the authority that we may possess in our own lives 
should point us to the one who has ultimate authority, and that is God. So let me ask you this question. Again, do you have a problem with submitting to God's authority? This morning, we'll be looking at a familiar passage of Scripture, Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus 20, we find some of the most important religious words ever written down. We find the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words. The Ten Commandments are also known as the moral law of God, God's righteous, uh, righteous standard. And this standard has been the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Now, it's a fact that for us to have a law, there must be a lawgiver. To quote uh, the Puritan Thomas Watson, he says, two things are required of a lawgiver. One is wisdom. He says, laws are based on reasoning, so therefore he who gives laws must be wise. But there is no one wiser than God. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Who can question any of his words? Who can teach the one who knows all things? Who can fathom all his wondrous deeds? As the Apostle Paul puts it, he says this, Oh, the depth of riches and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now, the second thing required of a lawgiver, according to Thomas Watson, is authority. Listen to what he says. He says, if a person makes laws, however wise they be, they want the stamp of authority. God has the supreme power in his hands, and he gives being to all. Now, as we look at these first two verses in Exodus 20, I want us to focus not so much on the law. That will be another sermon. Actually, that will be part two of the sermon. I'll be preaching again, end of the month, August 28th. So please come back so you can hear part two of this sermon. But for our time today, I want to focus not so much on the law, but the one who gave the law. I want to focus on the lawgiver, God. And I think as we focus on God, the main point that I see being communicated in these two verses that we're going to look at is this. Because God is who he is, and because of what he's done for us, he has the right to exercise authority over us. In other words, God has the right to command us how we ought to live, and we must obey him. And I recognize there are some bad examples of authority figures. Maybe you've had firsthand experience of someone who was an authority figure in your life, and they wielded their power over you uh, in a way that was harmful. Let me be the first to just say, look, I'm sorry that you had to experience something like that. It's easy, to, it's easy to see why we can all be suspicious of authority when we constantly see all these bad examples of authority figures, or even if you've experienced a bad authority figure. But I think even past all of that, the reason why we have a problem with the whole concept of, of authority is because at the end of the day, we're sinners. No one likes to be told what they can and can't do, right? No one likes to be told how they should live their life. We see this in the beginning of creation with, with Adam and Eve. You know, when they made the choice to disobey God, what they were doing was denying God's authority. They were rejecting God's rule over their lives. Don't we? Th this is all too familiar, right, church? 
Don't we too want to be the sole authority of our lives? Don't we think that life would be so much better if we could spend our time pursuing vain passions and pleasures? The world will tell you that you only live once, so you might as well live life doing the things that, that brings you happiness. You might as well live life by your own rules. The world will tell you that true freedom is found when you live life by your own rules. Let me just say this, church, there will be no freedom, no happiness, no joy, no satisfaction when you live a life rejecting God's authority. True freedom, true joy, true happiness, true satisfaction, true peace, true hope, these things are found when we live, when we live under God's authority and submit to his will in humble obedience. As we look at these verses, verses 1 and 2, my hope is that we will understand why we must submit to God's authority. And I see in these two verses three reasons why we should submit to God's authority. And I'm going to give you these three right now. So if you're taking notes, number one, God's word is authoritative. Number two, God is the Lord, your God. And number three, God is our redeemer who brought us out of slavery. So, looking at verse 1, and it says, And God spoke all these words. So let me just give you the context. Before Exodus 20, God has just performed this miraculous salvation by the power of his mighty hand. He redeemed the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So now this redeemed people have been invited into a covenantal relationship with God. They are newly formed people, and now they need instructions on how to live like the people of God. You see, in the ancient world, including places like Egypt, people worship many gods. But you see, these false gods were simply idols made by human hands. These false gods are idols that, that were worshipped. They couldn't speak. In fact, Psalm 115, verses 4 and 5 testify to this. It says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. But what does our text say in verse 1 of Exodus? It says, And God spoke all these words. You see, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a personal God. Not only does he relate to his people, he's able to communicate with his people in a way that is understandable. Keep this in mind. This is the same God who in the beginning, when the earth was without form, it was void, it was complete darkness, and he spoke these words, let there be light. This is the same God that spoke the first message of hope in Genesis 3 when he declared to the serpent in the presence of Adam and Eve these words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This same God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. He spoke these words of promise. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This same God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, when he says this, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now in Exodus 20, what do we see God doing? We see the same God speaking yet again. And this time he speaks his perfect moral law in the form of Ten Commandments. 
And the people shouldn't have been surprised that God spoke to them directly. Because back in Exodus chapter 19, verse 9, it says this. God says, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Now the people, they hear the voice of God from heaven. And it is accompanied by flashes of lightning and thunder. For a second, imagine how wonderful an experience it must have been to hear the audible voice of God. But at the same time, imagine how terrifying and how frightening it is to hear his voice accompanied by flashes of lightning and thunder. And the people, they responded with fear. They didn't want to hear the voice of God anymore after he spoke. In fact, they told Moses, look, from now on, you speak to us. We don't, we don't want to hear God's voice anymore. I, I can imagine hearing God speak in that moment must have made such a strong impression on the people regarding God's uh, character and his authority. And I think that, instruction, that, that impression must have been so strong that they could no, in no way doubt his presence with them and their duty to observe what was spoken by him, which was the Ten Commandments. You see, the Ten Commandments weren't delivered through a mediator. Angels didn't deliver the Ten Commandments. Moses didn't deliver the Ten Commandments. Another prophet didn't deliver the Ten Commandments. We don't see that famous prophetic claim, thus said the Lord. What do we see in verse 1? We see God speaking. God delivers the Ten Commandments himself. Well, you might ask, well, what's the significance in that? God speaking his moral law in the hearing of the people indicates that this law, it didn't originate with man. It originated with him. Like, he's the source of this law. And for that reason, it is of paramount importance that God's people take heed to God's word and obey it. As one theologian states, he says, the bonded nature of commands upon the conscience depends upon the authority of the person who issues them. Do you see how important God considers his law to be since he's the one delivering it? It is said that when an authority figure such as a king speaks, his words deserve allegiance. How much more when God speaks must his words be obeyed, church? When God speaks, we should listen. God's words God's word is authoritative. The one who created us and saved us has the authority to command us how we are to live. And I know today we are constantly bombarded with many voices. And these voices of this world sometimes take us captive with the latest ideology and philosophy. And these things are constantly spewed out to us through, 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 through podcasts, movies, social media, music, different motivational speakers. Let me ask you, what voices are you currently listening to this morning? Are these voices encouraging you to submit to God's authority? Are these voices encouraging you to reject God's authority? Church, we need to hear God's voice. And where do we hear his voice today? Well, in his word. If you want to hear the voice of God, simply get your Bible Open it up. There's 66 books in here, from Genesis to Revelation. Open it up, read it from cover to cover, and God is speaking through his word. Every single time the pages of scriptures are turned, he's speaking to us. 
Oh, church, may we cherish God's word and spend time daily training our minds to discern the voice of God. It says in the book of James that the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Church, let us not simply hear and read God's words only, but let us be people who obey it. And the second reason why we must submit to God's authority is God is the Lord, your God. So the first reason was God's word is authoritative. Second reason, God is the Lord, your God. First part of verse 2 states, I am the Lord, your God. Before God gives the people his law, he first announces who he is. And just who is God? Well, according to verse 2, he is the Lord. Back in Exodus chapter 3, when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, and he told Moses to, to go to Egypt and to, you know, lead the people out of Egypt. So Moses asked him, well, who should I say sent me? God says, I am who I am. I can imagine Moses in that moment, like, like what's your name, though? Like, it's, th- that's it? God says, I am who I am. He goes on to tell Moses this. He says, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You see, the name of God, the name of the God of Israel is Yahweh, and it comes from the Hebrew word, I am. I want us to understand the significance of God's name. God's name speaks to his sovereignty, his self-sufficiency, his self-existence. God has never been dependent on anyone. He does all that he pleases. Brothers and sisters, we are dependent on God for life. I heard it once said that all of life is God's grace. That is true. We're dependent on God every second of every day. Real quickly, take your hand. I borrowed this from Andrew Seacrest last week. Take your hand, your two fingers, right? Place them on your wrist. You remember this, Andrew? Place, place them on your wrist, just below your thumb. You should feel your pulse, right? That's your radio pulse. Or take a deep breath, right? Now, the fact that you're able to feel your pulse, the fact that you're able to take a deep breath, you know what that means, right? That means that you have life in your bodies. But where did this life come from? It comes from the immortal God, Yahweh, giving life to your mortal bodies, sustaining you in this moment right now. How about we just praise God for the fact that you have life in you right now? So, this God is making it known to Israel that he is the Lord, that he is the great I am. You see, not only is Yahweh making it known to the people of Israel that he's the Lord, but he's making it known that he is the Lord, their God, their covenant-keeping God. God has invited the people he has redeemed into a covenantal relationship with himself by grace. Look how privileged the nation of Israel is to have God as their God. The surrounding nations didn't have a relationship with Yahweh. Let me remind you who God is, because I want us to really understand the significance of being able to have God as your God, of being in a relationship with God. According to the Westminster Confession of Faith, it states this in response to the question, 
What is God? Please listen to this. It says this. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, Im- immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the reward of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, that was a mouthful, so take that all in. Right? We're talking about God. We're not talking about an idol, not some false deity, but we're talking about the almighty creator, God. Do you see why we must submit to God's authority? Do you see why he has the right to give us his laws to obey? So the people of Israel, they have this relationship with Yahweh, which raises the question, how in the world were they so fortunate to have a relationship with this God? One might say, well, it must have been something special about the people of Israel for God to enter into a covenantal relationship with them. One might think, well, they must have been some, some righteous people. Well, thankfully, you know, because we have the Bible, we don't have to speculate about these things. We know exactly why God chose to enter into a relationship with them. Turn in your Bibles really quickly, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 7 and 8 of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen to this. It says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. Verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So according to these verses, there was nothing special about the people of Israel. God's election of Israel had everything to do with his love, his grace, his mercy, his compassion. Oh, in church, he's free to bestow these things on any he chooses. So we can say that Israel was invited into a relationship with God solely by grace alone. Israel could never earn God's favor. We could never earn God's favor. So now that Israel has this covenantal relationship with God, what does it mean for them? What does it mean for us today to have a relationship with God? Well, two things I want to share with you, and hopefully these things will encourage you. One, to have a relationship with God, that means that we have God as our Father. That means we have God as a Father. A good Father is full of tender care and love for his child. A good father knows how to provide for his child. A good father will protect his children. The first two words of the Lord's Prayer, and we we pray this often in our services. Anybody remember what it says, the first two words? Our Father. Our Father. God being our God means we have God as a Father. 
Surely God is able to provide for his children. Surely he's able to protect us. Surely he will be full of compassion, tender care, and love toward us. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 calls God the Father of mercies. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 refer, uh, refers to him as the everlasting Father. Sadly, our earthly fathers, they sometimes disappoint us. They hurt us. They neglect us. They lie to us. Even worse, they even die. But to have God as our Father, we have a, God, we have a Father that will never die. We have a Father that won't disappoint us, that will never leave us, that will never hurt us. To have God as your God is to have the most powerful, loving, compassionate, merciful, patient, forgiving being as your Father. God the Father is so good that he even gave us a law to obey. And this law is for our good. Another implication of having God as our God is it signifies the relationship of a husband. You see, a good husband counts his wife to be very precious. He will love his wife in a sacrificial way. He will be faithful to his wife. He will be patient with his wife. He will live with his wife in an understanding way. He won't be abusive. And according to the prophet Isaiah chapter 54 verse 5, God is called our husband. It states, your maker is your husband. Because God is our God, we can count on him to treat us as the apple of his eye as the one in whom he takes great delight in. We are his treasured possession. So just to recap quickly, we must submit to God's authority, one, because his words are authoritative, two, because he is the Lord, your God, and three, my last and final point, he is our redeemer who has brought us out of slavery. Let's say, let's say person A, voluntarily rescued or helped person B. Person B now has a true, lasting moral obligation to person A. What I just described is the concept of a hesed relationship, which simply means loyalty required for loyalty shown. If you were rescued, it would be a travesty to simply ignore the good that was done on your behalf by another individual. The act of kindness shown should create a relationship of of love and loyalty to the benefactor. In verse 2 of our text, we see what God has done as Israel's benefactor. It states, I am the Lord your God. So he tells them who he is, right? He's the Lord your God, their God. Then now we see what he's done. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So let's kind of go back to the beginning of Exodus. At the beginning of Exodus, chapter 1, people of Israel, they have increased in number. Their population has grown in size. A new king arises over Egypt who oppressed the people of Israel. It is said that this new king, Pharaoh, dealt shrewdly with the people of Israel. He afflicted them with heavy burdens. He ruthlessly made them work as slaves. He even tried to kill their male children that were born. Now, as all this is going on, God is working behind the scenes. God hears the cry of the people. He sees their distress. And what does God do? He sets out to deliver them from slavery, from oppression. And the book of Exodus recounts God's miraculous power to save. God commissions Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. He sends a series of of, of ten plagues 
to afflict the Egyptians so that they would let the people of Israel go free. And if you've ever read Exodus, you just, it's like you get a front row seat of this great showdown between Israel's God, Yahweh, and the Egyptians and Pharaoh. Now, let me remind you, the Egyptians were like the superpower during that day. I don't think there were any nations stronger than them at that time. So, Pharaoh, this king, was very stubborn. He refused to let the people go despite all these plagues that God had sent. Now, in the last and final plague, God threatened to kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 12. And I want to read these verses. This is very important. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 of Exodus chapter 12. And it reads this way. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you, and be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Verse 8, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. Verse 10, and you shall let, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all of God, and, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the houses that had the blood sprinkled on the doorposts were free from God's judgment. At midnight, the Lord did as he promised and struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. So Pharaoh finally decides to let the people go. So the people, they go in that way out of Egypt, no longer slaves. But old Pharaoh, being as stubborn as ever, decides to pursue the people yet again. And this sets the stage for God to perform Yet another miracle. As Israel is being pursued, they come to the Red Sea. And God made a way for the people to cross the Red Sea on dry land. And when the Egyptians attempted to follow them, they were swallowed up by the sea. Never to be seen, never to be heard from again. This is why God can now give the people of Israel his law. Because of who he is and because of what he's done for them. He has redeemed them, and now they owe him loyalty, love, obedience. Remember, I said at the beginning, we weren't going to talk much about the Ten Commandments. That'll be 
part two. Come back for part two. But I wanted to focus on the one who gave us the Ten Commandments. We need to know who God is and what he's done for us so that we can understand our duty to submit to God's authority and obey his word. I want us to understand what Yahweh did for the people of Israel was truly amazing. It was a miracle. What other God has ever done anything remotely close? What other God had delivered an entire nation of people from slavery, leading them out of the hand of a superpower by such miraculous means? Oh, church, there is no one like the Lord our God. You see, in the Bible, Egypt represents our old life of slavery to sin. Israel's redemption from Egypt pictures our deliverance from bondage to sin. If you're not a Christian, first let me just say, I'm so happy that you're here. But the bad news is, you're still in Egypt. You're still a slave to sin. Now how, just how does one get free from being a slave to sin? Where is deliverance? Jesus says in uh, John chapter 8, verse 34, he says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to it. So how can one be set free? If you think about it, that might be one of the most important questions to think about in this life. How can I be set free from bondage to sin? Two ways I, I see people try to answer this question, and both of these ways are wrong. One, they say, well, you know what, I'll just stop sinning. My response to that, okay. Go ahead. We'll see how that works out for you, all right? Second way, people, they try to adopt religion. They say, you know what? I'll try my best, my best effort to submit to God's law, to obey his Ten Commandments, and then I can earn my freedom that way. Well, the Apostle Paul reminds us that through works of the law, no flesh will ever be justified. No one. No one will ever be declared righteous through works of the law, trying to keep God's law. What do we see in the book of Exodus? If you notice, God didn't visit the people in Egypt and give them his law and tell them, you know what, in five years I'm going to come back and based on your ability to keep the law, then I'll deliver you. Then I'll set you free. But what do we see in the book of Exodus? We see God delivering the people first. He saves them first before he gives them the law. He redeemed them. He gives them the law so that they will now live like his redeemed people. So now that they will reflect who God is through the lives that they live. When he gave them the law, he's telling them, look, don't live like slaves to sin any, to, uh, to sin any longer but live like my people. So you see, we need God's grace to be delivered from slavery to sin. God's grace shines bright in the person of Jesus Christ. For Christ has said, if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. You see, Christ is the only one who perfectly submitted to God's authority while he was on this earth. He never broke one commandment. He never rejected God's authority. He lived a life of personal perfect, perpetual obedience to God's law. He then stood in our place for, for our sins when he died on the cross. And you see, it is his bloodshed on Calvary that has caused 
God's judgment to pass over us. As the song goes, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. You see, this Jesus rising three days later, this Jesus now invites us all into a covenantal relationship with God. Turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept the invitation to follow Christ today. Experience the joy of salvation. Experience the joy and contentment of living a life of obedience to God. True happiness in this world comes when we submit to God's authority. You see, the one who has experience, the love of God, will in turn submit to his laws, not as a way to try to earn God's forgiveness, not as a way to try to earn salvation or or God's favor, but because of a heart of gratitude and love for the Savior. Look, we must know who God is and what he has done for us. And when you have knowledge of that, by his grace, thank you, Tony. When you have knowledge of that, the natural response is to submit to his law. It's to humbly submit yourself to his laws. But first you must know who he is and what he's done. And you must believe that and trust in that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we know that your word is truth. Lord, I pray, God, that you would just convict us all in this moment. The many ways that we fail to submit to your authority, when we, by our foolish ways, think that we know better than you and we try to live by our own authority. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would bring us to repentance right now. Lord, that you would help us to turn from that sin, God, and that we would just continue to turn to you and trust in you, trusting that your rule and reign, Lord, is good, and it can be trusted. Even though we have many bad examples of authority figures in this society, Father, we know that we can trust you, for you are the ultimate authority. So I pray by your grace that we would all humbly submit to that authority today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.